Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where precision machines are not for touching in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 54, which begins with the gyro captain flying over the compound, and it ends with the curmudgeon admiring the gyrocopter. We pick up today right where we left off with that nice POV shot as the gyrocopter flies over the compound. Another shot from Byron Kennedy's helicopter. I feel like we have a wealth of overview shots because this is another nice one but we already discussed it yesterday so it's kind of nothing left to talk about because <laughs> it's a great shot i want to talk about it but i already said everything yesterday so i got nothing new okay gotcha <laughs> we switch perspectives to a quick upward shot of the gyro captain apparently coming in for a landing because the next thing we see are the wheels of the gyrocopter touching down in a very vertical manner mm-hmm. which as we have discussed many times on this podcast before is literally impossible to do in a gyrocopter right they land like airplanes exactly not like helicopters those top blades are not powered by that engine they're powered by the wind rushing past them they're playing on our dumb movie viewer minds not understanding how a gyrocopter works yeah i think they kind of are having said that we just got a nice overview of the open compound area it might actually be clear enough if people moved out of the way it might actually be be clear enough for him to get some kind of airplane landing that would be very very rough but that certainly isn't what he did i've watched a couple of videos of a dude flying around a gyrocopter and i think i remember showing them to you as well where there are some stall maneuvers that you can do in a gyrocopter where you're flying along and then you pull back suddenly the gyrocopter slows way down and then you have to either bank to the side or tilt forward really quick to get the wind moving over your blades again but i imagine if you come in at fairly low angle and then do one of those crazy stall things you'll slow down enough that you can just tilt the machine forward really quick and then yeah you'll hit the ground hard and probably still roll a little bit but i imagine a skilled gyro captain pilot could land a proper gyrocopter in that compound we don't know much about his skill level. He does seem to take a great deal of pride in his machine. Oh, yeah. And his understanding of his machine. So I'm sure that he is properly skilled, but that machine is... Simple? Yes. I'm not <laughs> sure that it could stand up to much of a rough landing. So yeah, I call this landing bull. I would like to think... That the gyro captain being a gyro captain and the fact that his entire identity in this movie is built around him flying a gyrocopter, that he would have as much expertise in this machine as it would allow someone to have. There's a butt coming, but it still doesn't excuse the fact that they are trying to pass it off as a helicopter. You can't have it both ways, George. I know you tried. No. Not on our watch. We're going to stickle because we're sticklers. Are there brakes? 
for the wheels, the landing gear wheels, are there brakes to slow the machine down once it hits the ground? I certainly hope so. I wonder if he could have landed on top of the tanker or the bus. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty short runway. It's a very short runway. But because he doesn't have to come down at an angle, he could approach it as slow and as low as the machine will allow and have the brakes on that landing gear. Maybe that would have been a little more realistic. Possibly. Pretty short space, though. Possibly. While all of these gyrocopter shenanigans are happening in the center of the compound, Wes is still perched up on top of the tanker, and he has this look on his face. I would call it bewilderment, maybe astonishment. He looks like the kind of guy who has just seen something that he never thought he would see ever again, like a dinosaur or someone using a rotary telephone. <laughs> I think that is a side effect specifically for Wes, because in the chase leading up to entering the compound, while the gyro captain was around doing things that were helpful or just observing, Wes was very busy doing something exactly. that required all of his attention. He didn't notice the gyrocopter hanging around during that chase. He's been so busy since this thing started. Since he was getting a haircut, he has been nonstop, very focused, very busy. So, yeah, he didn't see it. He didn't know it was there. He didn't know such a thing was part of this whole mess. It's like being part of a checkers match, and then you turn around and someone is coming in with a Jenga tower, and you're like, that's a completely different game. This changes everything. Yeah. And so Wes, still mostly crouched, he turns and then runs down the length of the tanker trailer, jumps off the end, and pole vaults across the moat. I love this because it goes along with my theory that Road Warrior is very much a precursor in style of Fury Road. Yeah. Because this vaulting over the wall and the moat via the light post is very reminiscent of, what did you call them? The pole monkeys? They're either pole monkeys or pole cats or... Something like that from Fury Road. Right. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite parts of that movie. I can't wait. Yeah, it's pretty it's great. so fun. What I like about Wes's decision to run along the tanker and then use the light post is he's kind of doing a reverse pole vault because usually when you pole vault... You're going for height. You're using the pole to launch yourself higher. And in this instance, the pole's already upright, and so he just needs to go further. Yes, and it works out very, very well for him. Yes, it does. Once he gets to the other side of the moat, he doesn't run away <laughs> just yet. No, he's weird. Yep, he's got to turn around and do his little crouch, and what would you call this noise he makes? Uh, I do not know. It's kind of part yell Part scream, part growl. Yeah. My notes call it a growl. Yeah. You could also refer to it as an aggressive breath. Yes. Sort of a ha or something like that. Classic Wes. It just now occurs to me that some of the mannerisms of Wes correspond to the mannerisms of the feral child. Really? Yes. Mostly the sounds that he makes. He makes a lot of sounds that aren't words. He yells at people to get their attention. He growls. 
he finds alternate ways to get from A to B that are more safe for him, and he has those abilities. Yeah. He has a unique weapon. Nobody else has a wrist-mounted mini crossbow that we see, at least. I was say, now you've got me thinking of, does anyone else in this movie have a wrist-mounted crossbow? You know, listeners, go watch the movie from beginning to end. Make special note of anyone who has a mini crossbow. I want a list. Yes. This is for extra credit. You'll get nothing in the end. Just <laughs> But credit. Yeah. <laughs> so those are attributes that he shares with the feral child. I like where you're going with this because it sets up a sort of dichotomy between Max and Wes with the feral child in the middle. The feral child, as we're going to see in weeks down the road, is going to start emulating Max in little ways. And so Wes represents the man that the feral child could become. And Max is the man that the feral child wants to become. Ooh, I like that. It adds an extra layer to the Max-Wes relationship there. Yes. That they are just an odd couple. Ooh, I really like that. Now I kind of want to go back from the beginning, looking at Wes, Max, and the feral child through those kinds of eyes. That the feral child has a choice. He could be like Wes or he could be like Max. And he chooses to be like Max. One instance that stands out to me as far as an interaction between Wes and the feral child is when Wes headbutts the defiant victim and the feral child decides enough is enough and throws the boomerang at Wes. Wes is able to duck, of course, and the feral child gets a second throw that takes out the golden youth. But after the golden youth is killed by the boomerang, Wes, overcome with emotion at someone being hurt slash killed, grabs the boomerang and throws it at the feral child. So they have this little throwing match with each of them being emotionally riled and things happen as a result of that. Yeah, I think it works out better for the feral child than it does for Wes because as an adult, Wes had more emotional investment in the person who was hurt. He had a very personal connection to the golden youth and more, he had a lifetime of pent up anger and frustration and desire for vengeance and desire for violence. Whereas this little eight-year-old kid sees somebody that is of his same affiliation being hurt. Yeah. So he goes to defend him. And we don't know what their relationship, defiant victim and the feral child we don't know what their relationship was. Right. How well they knew each other, anything like that. Wes, I think, was unsuccessful in his response attack because he was too emotional. He let his emotions get the better of him. Yes, he was unfocused. Mm -hmm. He forgot his Jedi training. Yes, I think if he'd been a little calmer and a little more purposeful about it, he could have aimed and, and thrown better and maybe done some damage. I'm glad we're talking about this scene specifically because the next shot of this minute that we see is more or less from the end of that scene. The shot that we're looking at is Max standing on the wall and he's turning around to look behind him into the compound. This shot here is pretty much the same shot that we see from minute 35 right around second 42, except this one is a little bit longer. And you can tell it's from that scene, A, because it looks exactly the same. But in this shot here, Max is not standing behind the flamethrower. He's on the opposite side of the gate. The DeSoto is gone. All of the wrecked cars that were just there as obstructions are gone. This is an earlier shot. Yes. And they didn't think I'd notice. But I did. <laughs> but you did. I wonder what their strategy was, or lack of strategy, I suppose, in retreating 
Like, why why did they decide to retreat when they hadn't before? I want to say that the Lord Humongous retreated in this instance because he was upset that he got bested. And he is very riled up and angry right now, and he knows that he will not be an effective commander if he allows his emotions to guide his hand. So I think he has ordered a general withdrawal because he knows that if they keep pressing on the gate, that it's just going to be more of the same. Okay. Press on the gate, get repelled by the flamethrower. Okay. So I think they reused this shot to just show us in a very simple way, look, the horde is retreating, mm -hmm. and they didn't have to get all the vehicles together to kick up dust again. Yeah, I think this was an intelligent reuse of that shot. Absolutely. It's tough because it is such a different time of day, so that is very obvious to me. But I've been dealing with that for the past few minutes. This doesn't make it any worse. Exactly. The next thing we see is a nice high-angle shot on the compound. It's the next in a long line of high-angle shots of the, the inside of the compound. You can see that after the mayhem of the attack, four raiders are dead. The compound has three new vehicles, a buggy, the lone wolf, and the Mac, and in Max and the gyro captain, two potential new allies for them. Generally speaking, the compound is in a much better position than it was earlier in that morning. Yeah, I would argue that they are in a much better position. Yes, because not only do they have the rig, which is obvious, but the lone wolf is an armored vehicle. Pretty much. That could be really handy. You know the movie in general much better than I do pre-analyzing it. Do the compound dwellers use the lone wolf at all? Oh, absolutely. It's oh, the excellent. car that Papagallo drives in the final chase. I That makes me so happy to hear that because it makes so much sense. Another thing you can see in this nice high shot is up in the top right corner, you can see David lying on the ground and big Rebecca goes over to check on him. And kind of try and wake him up. It's not until tomorrow's minute that you see Big Rebecca and someone else actually just moving him. But you get the sense that he's not completely dead. That he was just knocked out and thrown. I mean, it's a substantial height. I'd say 10, 12 feet, yeah, 2 that meters. Seems, that seems about right. That seems about Maybe right. Maybe a little bit higher, but not a ton. He seems to be bruised, probably going to have a real bad headache, but all in all, not probably worse the, for wear. He, if he landed on his back, probably had the wind knocked out. Oh, yeah. Which is very uncomfortable and very dramatic, but it's really not that big a deal. Yeah. One thing that stands out audibly, you can hear the curmudgeon saying, you did a great job, that's my man, that's my man, and he is lauding specifically over the gyro captain and the gyro captain is being surrounded by these compound dwellers and he says now don't go overboard now and then he turns his attention to the people that are swarming around the gyro captain. he says no don't touch please it's a precision instrument he is so happy right now yeah <laughs> i think his happiness is kind of twofold yes he's being fawned all over because he's got this machine that is new and interesting, and it's a novelty, and it was very handy, although the dwellers probably didn't really see that. It was probably kind of out of their range of vision that they were really paying attention to at the time. I think he's also really happy because in the compound dweller's perspective, the gyro captain is paired with Max. Right. They are a team. I'm willing to bet that they were able to see the gyro captain flying over the Mac as the truck approached. And someone probably pointed out, hey, look, he's throwing snakes at people because the crash of the dart car was pretty substantial. It was. And, you know, now that I think of it, it was pretty close to the compound. Exactly. I'm just not sure how much they were paying attention. I'm willing to bet a couple of people noticed. I'm willing to bet 
the curmudgeon specifically is the one that noticed. Yeah. Which is why he's so congratulatory of the gyro captain, because the gyro captain literally took out one of those cars, which is a huge blow to the horde. Every vehicle is precious, and the loss of even one of them is a big blow to their mobility. They lost a weapon and two men as well. Exactly. So the gyro captain is just pretty as you please. Meanwhile, behind his back... <laughs> The feral child is sneaking up and takes a interest in the rear prop of the gyrocopter. I'm willing to bet he takes an interest in it because it kind of looks like a flattened out boomerang, would you say? He notices the curves on the prop and he's like, oh, hey, that reminds me of my boomerang. Yeah, I can see that. Not that an eight-year-old would need a reason to mess with something. It's a very interesting piece of equipment, kind of no matter your circumstances. Whether you've seen aircraft before, this is an unusual aircraft. Yeah. Anybody familiar with vehicles, this is an unusual vehicle. The feral child, he's familiar with metal weapons. Well, this is an unusual use of metal blades. Yeah. So, Connor, no matter who you are, this is a novelty, and it's very interesting. And even the two of us are fascinated by the gyrocopter. Mm -hmm. The gyrocaptain is trying to take in all of this adoration. He keeps having to turn back and tell the feral child to stop touching his machine. And he tells him, don't touch, stop touching. And he's like waving him off, trying to get him to go away. And the feral child is an eight-year-old, so he's not going to listen. Nope, because he's eight. There is a line from Sleepless in Seattle where the son of Sleepless, he's either eight or ten, and he's being obnoxious. While Tom Hanks, the sleepless in Seattle guy, is seeing off his current girlfriend on a plane. And the kid's being really obnoxious. So Tom Hanks tells his girlfriend, he's 10, as an excuse of why he's being obnoxious. Her <laughs> reply is, he's good at it. Yeah. <laughs> Fairchild is eight, and he's good at it. Yeah, absolutely. The shooing and the defiant touching go so far as for the gyro captain to reach towards the feral child's face and i think he almost like nicks him taps his nose or something as he's flipping his hand away yeah he bats at him hard enough that it kind of sends the feral child reeling backwards a bit yeah he takes a step back to avoid getting snapped at that time he keeps backing up yeah and there's a little moment where the expression on his face his feelings are hurt. And that is so freaking annoying because he's eight. And he does this little, I think this is a legitimate growl. Oh, yes. His way of expressing to the gyro captain that he is not pleased with his treatment. He wants to touch and he is being told he cannot touch. And so he is going to growl at the gyro captain so he can express his upset feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's how he expresses himself, because even kids who have proper parents and have had a classic upbringing have a hard time expressing themselves. Yeah, take that normal situation and take all of the nurturing out of it, raise that child in the wild, hunting and eating rabbits, we assume, and that's what you're going to get. Yeah, a child that growls when he doesn't get his way. Oh, and he's just, by the end of that, just touching that machine for the sake of touching it. He's touching it, making eye contact with the gyro captain saying, you don't want me to do this? Well, guess what? I'm going to do it. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. And he's being very annoying. Yes, he is. To the gyro captain especially. Yes, he is. And oh, his, his face. He scrunches his face up so 
tight. It's hilarious. It's great comic effect. Yeah. So I was thinking about annoying children. <laughs> and I jumped on ranker.com, which they make listicles. They love mm -hmm. their lists. And someone wrote a list called the seven most annoying kids in action movie history. Would you like to know them? I would. I love that it's specific to action movies. So in no particular order, the number one name on the list is Edward Furlong, who played John Connor in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I see that. Yeah. He gets pretty bossy with the Terminator, which is ballsy. Well, once he realizes that his future self was the one that sent this Terminator back, and he realizes that he's got this death machine at his command, mm -hmm. of course he's going to get a little bossy. But at the same time, he also is trying to teach the machine how to human in order to blend in. Right. It just gets goofy. Which is kind of a an android slash robot trope, teaching it how to be human. And I mean, he does a fairly good job. By the end of the movie, Arnold's like, now I know why you cry. <laughs> I think Edward Furlong, he definitely suffers from the, I am a young teenager, and so I need to act tough, but I'm still no match for a polymorphic metal assassin. Mm. And so he's also very damsely. So the number two name on the list, which is going to surprise absolutely no one, is a young man named Jake Lloyd, who played Anakin Skywalker <laughs> in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, a.k.a. the guy responsible for making Darth Vader say yippee in a movie. Yep. Not sure there's more to add to that character analysis that Star Wars Minute guys haven't already done. Right. I think the major thing that tarnishes Jake Lloyd's legacy is his line delivery. When he's yelling, now this is pod racing, or when they're sitting down to Nerisa's and if you try to escape, they'll blow you up. Boom. It's just, he speaks with a cadence and a tone that is just so grating. Although I gotta say, in Ugh. his defense, kids really are that annoying. That's very true. Why should Darth Vader be any different? Right. <laughs> it's the kids who are good actors that make a movie child tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like I completely hate kids, but I do not. I like kids well enough. So moving on, the number three name on that list is Jonathan K. Kwan, who is responsible for the role of Short Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I feel like that's another actor who gets a bad rap because of his line delivery. Things like yelling, hang on, lady, we going for a ride, and he no nuts, he crazy. Yeah, there's a lot of writing problems in there. I'm yeah. having a hard time picturing him delivering those lines. Because all I can picture is him from Goonies. <laughs> it's a movie I'm much more familiar with yeah. than Temple of Doom. Now, see, I'm the exact opposite. I'm much more familiar with Temple of Doom than I am with Goonies. And I thoroughly enjoyed listening to Indiana Jones Minute cover Temple of Doom. I know that Goonies Minute is out there. Anyone who loves Goonies the movie should definitely go out and listen to that for sure. But I'm just not as familiar with it. One thing I do know is that Jonathan K. Kwan definitely redeems himself in Goonies. Yes, I agree. Who's next? Next up is actually a double billing, which is sort of a cheat when you have a list of seven kids in movies. But it is a double billing of Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards from Jurassic Park, where they played Tim and Lex Murphy. What? What? 
Yep. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. I disagree. Now... I thought they were great. The major complaints in the list include the fact that they shined a super bright flashlight in the eye of a T-Rex and drew unnecessary attention to themselves. There's also a lot of ire raised about how Tim was sticking to Dr. Grant so tightly in the beginning part of that movie that Dr. Grant had to escape to a different car in order to get away from him. There's also the fact that they would much rather play a virtual video game disguised as hacking or something like that instead of just walking across the room and giving Dr. Grant the gun. Like, just stop hanging out with your sister, go across the room, grab the gun, give it to Dr. Grant. Now, granted, Dr. Sattler was not helping at all pushing on the hinge side of the door, but that's a whole other thing. Go listen to Jurassic Park Minute. Right. (laughs) I will give you the scene with the hacking and the gun and the door. That is really annoying. Yep. As a whole, I think the kids are part of why that movie is so good. They do enough things on their own that an adult is not present for that are good scenes, like the whole raptors in the kitchen. I still find the kids annoying, though. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> you were pretty incensed by number four on the list. I'm interested to see how you're going to react to number five. The name is Rupert Grint. The role is Ron Weasley in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding. Well, I am not as incensed as Jurassic Park because I, if you've listened to any other episode of ours, you know that I am a huge Harry Potter fan. I don't think the movies did the books justice. I really don't see a problem with Ron. The main reason he's on this list, as the author describes, it is from his forced, inappropriate, and contrived sarcasm. The example they give is an instance where the smartest witch in the class tells him, just relax, it'll kill you faster if you don't. And what does he say? Kill me faster? Oh, now I can relax. I thought that was funny. It's... How he said it, though. Okay. So his his tone. They didn't like I think, his tone. I think they're taking a lot of issue with his tone. Okay. I think I was okay with that because Ron's character, I think, is very hard to define. Yeah. Harry is the hero. Mm-hmm. Hermione is the brains. Yep. And then there's Ron. His role in the trio, for me, is a little vague. Yeah. He's kind of the humor. He's kind of the heart. He fills in a gap between Harry and Hermione that very much needs to be filled in. Yeah. I don't want to delve too much into Harry Potter stuff because the Harry Potter Minute podcast does plenty of that. (laughs) Does plenty of that. But I always see in the trio, yes, they're all Gryffindors, but Harry is the Slytherin Gryffindor, Hermione is the Ravenclaw Gryffindor, and Ron is the Hufflepuff Gryffindor, that they have their secondary houses that influence where they stand in the trio. I think that analysis reiterates what I was saying about his role being vague, because one of the defining characteristics of Hufflepuff is their loyalty. Right. And yes, in general, Ron is very, very loyal to his own family, to the trio. There are plenty of times throughout the entire books where he's not speaking to one or the other, or he's angry at his family. And then even in the very last book, he abandons them. I feel like that was Horcrux influence, but you know, we're... Yeah, we're getting too deep into this. The point is, I think Ron's portrayal in the movie, even with the sarcasm, even with the tone, I think was fine. I think Rupert Grint gets better. Well, they all get better. Yeah. 
I'm not, I'm, we're not going to talk about the acting quality <laughs> in those movies. So number six on the list uh-huh. is Shia LaBeouf. They specifically list him as Mutt Williams in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But they also add the caveat, also everything else he's ever been in. Holes? I actually never watched Holes. Holes is a good movie. Is it? Yeah. I read the book. I never, never saw oh, the movie. I would like to read the book. Did you enjoy the book? The book was all right. Yeah. No it's one... one of those books slash movies that's family friendly. Yeah. It's meant for a younger crowd, but it's not a kid's movie. It's an everybody movie. No one has done Holes Minute, which sounds a little weird now mm. that I say it out loud. It does. But I believe an episode of the Protagonist podcast did an entire episode dedicated to the main character of that movie. Okay. I enjoyed that movie. I find it a little strange that they listed Mutt Williams in a list of kids that are he's, annoying. Because well, he's definitely not a kid. He's not a kid, but he's not a proper grown-up either. He's still in, like, high school, right? I thought he was a little older, but I'll save that yeah. for Indiana Jones Minute to cover once they're done with Last Crusade. Yeah. So the last name on the list, poor, dear, sweet Dakota Fanning as Rachel Farrier in War of the Worlds. Do you remember the little girl oh, from War of the Worlds? Barely. I saw Tom that Bruce? movie in the theater, mm-hmm. and I don't remember that much about it other than the overarching storyline. Yeah. You might remember her constantly screaming throughout the whole movie. Mm, that is that what would be a problem. really raises the ire of this author, that she just never stops screaming for every little thing. That is the list of the seven most annoying kids in action movie history according to this author on ranker.com i forgot about the action movie criteria harry potter is considered an action movie i don't know it doesn't matter do we have anything else about this minute the only thing that we have left is the beginning of a line from the curmudgeon to the gyro captain where he says tell me son and it's the beginning of a sentence that is going to end tomorrow so let's take all of that and just shift it to tomorrow Sounds great to me. Tomorrow is Friday. We're going to have some fresh eyes to comment on the movie that they have not been watching constantly like we have. We're going to catch up with the curmudgeon. We're going to see how that relates to the gyrocopter and the gyro captain. And, you know, we'll wrap up the week there. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us. For minute 54 of The Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.